Tonight I'd like to speak about the path of not knowing. I think the uh, spiritual path can be summarized uh, very simply. And that is, uh, all of the practices, everything we do, eventually uh, has the intention of stepping out of self-deception. And we can make it very muddled and difficult, very complicated, because... uh, the sense of the egoic sense of me, the egoic sense of, of self, that which we are trying to perceive and step out of, uh, constantly gets us entangled within its strategies, even as we supposedly are using those strategies to step out of it. And we can then look back and as our understanding deepens and sees that, see that the very practices we are using were really um, towards greater um, delusion, misperception of self. And I think some people uh, relate to this um, simple discovery of what the self is and how to step out of its deceptive strategies is a confrontation. They perceive it and often intellectualize it as a confrontation. The word uh, confrontation doesn't work well for me uh, because that's a strategy of (laughs) self-deception. So the words we use are very important in terms of whether we are subtly entangling ourselves further or whether we are actually stepping out of self-deception. And I don't think... um, I think uh, the talk tonight... what I would like to look at is one of the strategies. For me, a a better way uh, to orient the direction of the practice is not towards a confrontation with the ego, but rather looking at the strategies that the ego employs. And when you are finished with those strategies, when they aren't working for you anymore, then we step out of it. We will continue to employ self-deception as long as we think it works for us, even spiritually. It's such a funny business. It's so um, self-assured Righteous and reactive. I can remember so many times, this is a digression, but it's early in the talk, so there's (laughs) plenty of room. (laughs) 
I can remember um, in my, having gone through a particular understanding of uh, the end of striving and ambition and practice and, and seeing it, seeing it very clearly that it wasn't working, that that was a strategy of, of egoic involvement, and, and then forming a very hardened view about that and, uh, and not seeing that the hardened view was part of the same deception. And then arguing self-righteously with another meditator, you know, how striving was, you know, anti-whatever, or it wasn't the spiritual path, or all, it, just taking a, a stand. But never seeing that the view was part of the whole deception, you see? And so tonight I want to... Um, expound a little bit upon one of the strategies of the ego, one of the ways that it lures us in, um, especially in this culture, and how we have to be willing uh, to confront the very fearful opposite of this strategy. And in fact, it was because the uh, strategy is so fearfully, is so fearful, is the reason that we don't confront its opposite. So it's, this is, has to do with the path of not knowing. The path of not knowing. And you can just think for a minute uh, where you hold not knowing and the fear that arises in not knowing. Having no ground under me, the fear of, of losing what I do have. It touches our life deficiencies. Not having a direction, no career, no partner, no children. Not knowing what's important. Not having financial security. Not getting what I want. What will I do when I'm old? What will I become? Who will I be? See, it's an existential crisis that not knowing, the not knowing. And because of that fear in the present, contained in the present, of not knowing the future and feeling very incomplete and insufficient in that not knowing, we try to resolve the future. We try to work it out. We work endlessly towards the resolution of the future. Because when we're thrown back in the present, all we hold or know of the present is that fear of deficiency. So I'm not staying here. I'm going to try to work it out. And this fear propels us into another time frame. The present represents the deficiency. The future represents the hope of completion from that deficiency. Do you see? That is a strategy of the ego. That's how it works. That's how differentiation occurs. 
the present must be cast as insufficient. And the leaning has, once we lean outside of all that is, which is the present moment, we have to differentiate. Because anything outside of the present moment has to be fictitious. Just a projection, just an idea. And as soon as we are basing our activity, our efforts in an idea, there is differentiation. And we meet here wanting to get over that differentiation, which is formed by an idea. The terror of the present, the, pre- the test. There's no guidance here. The idea provides me guidance, provides me hope. And hope is tremendously important to differentiation. That's where desire comes. Desire and fear come from, from hope. This has got to be better. Something's got to be better than this. There's got to be a time that's better than this. Now, it's not that, and I want to say this early on, there's tremendous value in knowing. We're not casting the baby out with the bathwater. Psychologically, it represents an orderly worldview. It regulates, coordinates all of the incoming data. There was a a study once of people who had been blind from birth. And through some innovative medical technique, they recovered their sight when they were adults through an operation. And there were a bunch of reporters or someone present as their blindfolds were taken off in the first opportunity that they had to see. And the first thing that they wanted to do uniformly was to put the blindfold back on because the data was not organized. It was chaotic. The world must be stable in some way for us to be able to question it. There's no question. And knowing, the, the sense of knowing, of integrating the data and knowing that as far as I can see, is essential for all of us to have. Hmm? And of course, upon that knowing, plays the familiar self-deception game as well. Because it doesn't stop with the organization of the data. It goes internally towards the organization of the self around that data. It begins to create a world view in which I am a central character within that view. Now that comes only from the knowing. 
That comes from the mind's ability to remember and to know and to generalize this particular situation against past similar situations and then to come forth with one's skills or deficiencies within that situation. That's the sense of I that is derived from knowing. And so the sense of I is a fixed point. It's a fixation. Fixed. And so we try to apply yesterday's understanding to today's problem. So knowledge, the knowing, when applied to our psychological sense of centeredness, of where we stand, is out of whack. As Carol was mentioning last night, I don't want to make this too, this is not abstract to me, and I hope it's not abstract to you. This is our experience. This is what we can really see. I'm not interested in us not moving together in this talk. As Carol was mentioning very nicely last night about the fluidity of experience, inward and outward, the fluidity, the fluidity, the movement. There is nowhere that attention can be placed in which that fluidity can't be felt and expressed. And as soon as we say I, the fluidity stops. It's frozen. We become frozen. So the, the sense of I, of knowing, me, the me can only be, is from the knowing, is in direct contrast, and is in direct confrontation to the fluidity of reality. Everything's moving. It can't be fixed. But that doesn't keep us from constantly saying I. And we reference ourselves mostly from the memory of who we of that of the of the qualities that have been that we've experienced through our system, through our awareness. So that if you happen to, for some reason at all, had a life in which anger has arisen a number of times, then I am an angry person. I am an angry person. Even though the vast majority of time you don't have anger at all. Never mind, we keep referencing the fact that it comes up once in a while as a statement of our basic worth. Rather than the fluidity of the moment. If it's not there, it's not there. It's not lurking somewhere. It's not there. I think this is um, one of the real deficiencies of Western psychology is that we think it's lurking somewhere. As if you're carrying it all the time. If there's someone carrying it all the time. 
and that it doesn't rise based on conditions, that there's a holder of it. And the more we work on the person who is the holder of it, the more we affirm the self-deception of the flu- and, and, and deny the fluidity. So we have to see this as the strategy of, of the sense of me. The sense of me. Not that knowing is wrong. I'm just, I really need to reinforce that again and again. We need to know. We need to functionally manage our way through the world. We need to do whatever our profession calls upon us to do, and that, all, that takes a knowledge base. It's just when that knowledge base assumes a stance... In hospice care, it's very interesting. I have seen it a number of times. As the person begins to go through the experience of the dissemination of their body, they, the, the sense of what they have known in their life is present, but then there's also a sense of mystery uh, that is also very present. I'll just read a a short description of such a patient. One hospice patient spoke about her view of the world as she was dying. I wake up after a night's sleep and check myself to see if I am still alive. Yes, today I can still hear and see. I can't take anything for granted anymore. But when I look around the world at things that I have lived with my whole life, everything looks a little different. Objects have taken on a shine and a newness, as if they had never been seen before. Everything is both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. So the liberation of self-deception isn't that knowledge is not accessible. I saw a TV movie about some guy that had severed some quality of memory in his brain through some accident or something. And so he would meet you and then he would turn around and and the moment he turned away from you, he would forget that he had met you. So he'd turn back around and say, oh, hi, how, how are you? I'm such and such, and reintroduce himself. And he would turn back around, and he would get stuck in that loop of never having the memory of having met that person again and again and again and again and again. That's not freedom. It's not to lose our memory. But to be encased in memory, which is a very interesting point, to be encased in memory so that we can't see anything new isn't the point either. In fact, very interesting, the cognitive, the neurological pathway for perception is exactly the same neurological pathway as memory. So to the brain, it doesn't know the brain does not know whether it is perceiving something 
new or it is perceiving the memory of something. If you look out, the reason that the world is filled with what you know is that those two pathways are activated simultaneously. So we see what we have ahead of us here. We see the job. And when, because they're simultaneous, one assures safety, one assures security, one assures familiarity, And prestige. I've been here before. I know this. Self-worth. I can master this. Or not. But the brain doesn't... The, the ego, the egoic sense of me, doesn't really care whether you're self-assured or under-insured. It doesn't care. It cares that you're differentiated. How you are differentiated is of little concern. Differentiation is what it's concerned about. Because either way, you are secure. So the same pathway that provides that security and assurance is the same pathway in which the Dharma reaches out as well. Now that hand doesn't provide a lot of safety. In fact, it provides the fear of not having safety. The fear, now I, I hope that this, just stay with me. The fear of not having safety is only unsafe when we're differentiated. These are the paradoxes. You know something's true because if it's paradoxical. So what does it feel? What From differentiation, I look at newness, I look at not knowing, and I feel helpless. That's what I project from the fear of looking at something new. I'm helpless there. I'm helpless. I'm out of control. I have no power. So we choose the path of the memory of the perception. We choose to lean on the memory of the perception, not on the newness of the perception. I find that very interesting. And for some of us, old meditators, people who experienced meditators, 
who can also be old. Sometimes I feel almost a death that has taken place in the vitality and the aliveness. Because the path can be chosen to just go with the memory again and again and again. And the path unfolds. There's a certain degree of calm. There's a certain way that transformation of character develops, even from the path of memory, of knowing. But there's a death. There's a, the vitality isn't there. The aliveness can't be reached. And they look for new practices Give me something else. Give me something else. Tell me how. Tell me a way. And the way is right in front of the eyes. But we have to go through the deeply ingrained trauma, if I can use that word, of being helpless. a feeling out of control. And most of us simply are not willing to do that. You see, it's not about your abilities. It's not about how much samadhi you have. It's not about anything except whether you're willing to meet this. Because this is the challenge. Walk this path, you can fool yourself a long, long, a long time with greater self-deception. Do you ever realize, see how much a burden mindfulness can be sometimes? Because when it's added to everything else you have to do, it's something else the sense of me has to do. Now I have to be mindful my teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, said, find that which is naturally awake. This woman, when you see something new, you are naturally awake. As I was mentioning in a question and answer period, that which is interesting is what you do not know, not what you know. You already know what you know. You'll never be interested in what you already know. When you're interested, there is natural awakefulness. But it's only with what you don't know. Which is where you're most helpless. Which is where you have to be most humble. Because when you know something, it's arrogance. But you're in control. So knowing works counter to the very fabric of the Dharma. And to that degree we are fixed and know, to that degree our lives will be rigid and opinionated. Just like mine was when I saw that striving and ambition doesn't work. I I I built that into a a statement of me and what I know, and became rigid and opinionated 
in the very insight that was meant for liberation. And you begin to see that as we move more and more with the knowing, as opposed with the non-knowing, we move more into the realm of habit and predictability. It's where all manners have come from, and organizations and hierarchical structures where taxonomy, things are organized and labeled and known And it makes everything very predictable. Protocols. So, because when we apply a habit, we apply a formula to life. And we wonder why our heart feels so remiss, so unreachable, so distant. Because interest, which is the key to the heart's expression isn't found in the world of habit, in the world of comfort. Hmm? Helen Keller, a woman who was both blind and deaf, said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. Now, when the self meets the mystery, there is fear. And if we're not willing to go through that fear, we will continue the differentiation and the avoidance of that fear. And try to work forever at releasing that differentiation, but not facing the fear. There is only one way to release ourselves from differentiation. This is a story in The Art of the Pilgrimage. Phil Cousineau tells the following story of Joseph Campbell giving advice to a young woman before she embarks on a pilgrimage to Greece. He had just given a talk to a small audience on the nature of the goddess. The young woman who had made precise calculations of the best time to visit every major cultural attraction and just where and when she should make her salutations to the different deities whose statues remained. Do you think this is sufficient, she pressed him? Do you think I will find the spirit of the goddess? Joseph had been staring at her while a parade of mixed emotions played over his features. Now he took her one free hand in his, and with great kindness and solemnity, he said, Dear lady, I sincerely hope that all does not go as planned. (laughs) With that, he slipped into his overcoat, and we left the building. Sitting in the back seat of the car on the drive home, I could barely contain my curiosity. 
Finally, mustering all the courage of my 17 years, I leaned over the front seat and said, Mr. Campbell, that woman who was going to Greece, why did you tell her that you hoped things did not go as planned? Joseph paused as if trying to sort through all the encounters of the evening and then threw back his head and laughed with a mystic's glee. How will the gods ever find her when she has done everything in her power to make sure they never will? Then he said very soberly, Unless you leave room for serendipity, how can the divine enter? The beginning of the adventure of finding yourself is to lose your way. This requires another depth of sincerity. And to be honest, most of us will not come to this until that strategy of playing forth our spiritual practice within the known and predictable has run its course and we become so frustrated with it that we are forced to give up that strategy. And that requires an enormous strength of conviction that we have not faltered and failed because that's where we'll go next. It's true, I just couldn't do it. It's not that. There's something far richer. when we enter the mystery. And the mystery can only be entered through the door, for most of us, of its fear, which was always there in the present, but it was driving us into trying to resolve it in the future, which was the whole problem to begin with, was that we never were willing to enter the fear. I can feel this. As soon as that resolution of heart says, in effect, come what may, come what may, I don't care anymore, come what may, there is no more fear. And there is no more differentiation. I believe when the Buddha resolved that he would not get up from sitting, that was his enlightenment. Come what may. Therein you entered the gateless. That requires an enormous degree of trust and relaxation. It's always been here. It's always been present. It, the doorway is accessible. How could it not be? How could it be any richer at the end of the journey to India or the pilgrimage to see the saint or after a 100,000 prostrations or a hundred retreats. 
How could this not be it? And we begin to see that if we choose knowledge, we will be held captive to what knowledge offers the sense of me, which is power, self-image. And if we choose to live on reality's terms, in the unknowing, in the not knowing, we will be transformed, but we will not be in control. I need to know. I need to know. I was at home a month or two ago, and a woman called me who was on a Spirit Rock retreat. And she was doing the two months sitting that Spirit Rock offers, I think, in February and March. And she called me from the retreat. And she had lost her husband. Her husband had been killed about a month or two earlier. And she keeps having a sense of his presence with her. And she called me, probably one of the teachers pointed her to me, and she wanted to know if I felt that that could be true, that her husband was, the presence that she was feeling could in fact be her late husband, And it was interesting because, um, first of all, I have no idea. (laughs) But what I heard in her was that I I cannot have my life without him, and I will take him disembodied in presence, but I cannot take my life without his presence. And I said, you know, it's keeping you from grieving. You have to grieve him. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. What's true, what you have to do is to let the grief come in, the loss, the not knowing. You can't keep reaffirming your old world. The struggle to know has filled most of our lives. It is what gives it a status, claim. And in fact, there's a conflict that we're always constantly trying to know more, to gain more knowledge. And if ending conflict was our greatest concern, then we would have to give up knowing more. Because we see how much that revolves around a kind of struggle. There's a beautiful method. It's so simple and yet so effective to cut through the need to know. But very few meditators use it to the worth and extent 
that it can empower the not knowing. And that is the willingness to hold a question. What is this? Who am I? What? What? When we hold a question, we are entering reality that doesn't know. But the way the mind reacts to a question is that it tries to get over the not knowing to the answer so that we can solidify back into the knowing. We're not interested in the state of not knowing that the question induces. And yet that's as close to the mystery as we need to be. A question breaks the fixation of knowing and allows the wonder in. The wonder in the mystery. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie. I recommend it. It's called, What the Bleep Do We Know? It's an art film, but it shows the confluence of mysticism and science. And one of the scientists there, a well-known, respected physicist, says every morning before he gets out of bed, because he's beginning to see, he's beginning to let the effect of his scientific understanding affect his inward life. Before he gets out of bed every morning, he says to himself, let the mystery reveal itself to me today in some synchronistic, serendipitous way. And we've all had that. I was once doing a six-weeks retreat at um, Gaia House in England. And I was just there by myself. And I went into the library. I went into the library one time in six weeks, and I went in. And I didn't know any of the books, and I was just looking around. And I just reached up and took a book down. And it said... I can't even remember the title, but it had something about the voices of Nisargadatta Maharaj. And I laid it on the table, and it opened, just fell open from the binders, and I started to read. I said, whoa, this sounds familiar. And I looked at the date of the recorded conversation. It was January 1980. And I realized that that was me in January 1980. Now what, how much proof do we need? (laughs) Those of you who are mathematicians are probably finding, calculating the probability of that. (laughs) But I dare say it is not within reach. The synchronicity, the mystery, beckons us, welcomes us. All we find when we open that door, when we walk through the fear, is the welcoming heart. That's the discovery. And the world opens into that view. Not of differentiation, but of unification. 
This then becomes the gateless path of not knowing. No longer moving outside, trying to resolve the fear contained in the present, because the present contains the helplessness, the out-of-controlness. But entering it with faith and conviction, I can't live that way anymore. That strategy of self-deception has been pulled, the roots of the dandelion are up. I can't live that way anymore. And I don't know what is going to happen in entering releasing myself from that strategy. But I see that that strategy has been a lie my entire life. When the Buddha talked about the first noble truth, he talked about entering, entering that pain. Okay. Then, as one teacher said, was asked a question, he said, the question was, uh, isn't enlightenment the ultimate state of knowing? And he responds, no, it's the ultimate state of being. The price is knowing. Let us sit for a minute in that not knowing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.